Everyone faces challenges every single day. Some are chosen and bring us joy. Some are given to us and bring struggle or pain. Whether the diagnosis of an illness, the news of a friend's death, the loss of a job, or a bike accident, we may be asked to step up to face issues that demand courage and perseverance. Hurt is just one of the many aspects of full lives. Each week on this show, ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope, Dr. Joanne Dahl helps us understand how we can use acceptance and commitment therapy to learn to accept what we cannot change and move forward into a valued life. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joanne Dahl. Welcome to ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope. Today, I'd like to take up a concept of pro-social behavior what it is, how it can be trained, and what kind of effects it has for us as individuals, as a group, as a nation, and on our earth. Pro-social behavior is defined as voluntary behavior intended to benefit another. So pro-social behavior would be something that benefits other people or society as a whole, such as helping or sharing, donating, cooperating, and volunteering. These efforts might be motivated by empathy or by concern of the welfare and rights of others or by more selfish desires, for example, by developing yourself. A recent article in Health Psychology called Motives for Volunteering are, are associated with mortality risks in older adults suggests that It's the motive for volunteers that has health-promoting effects rather than simply the behavior of volunteering. So those who volunteered for more self-centered reasons, for example, to benefit themselves, had no significant effects on stress or early mortality figures, whereas those who volunteered with the motive of simply wanting to help gained greater protection for the harmful effects of stress. So it's become very interesting, uh, the effects of pro-social behavior, and I wanted to bring in a guest, and I couldn't think of a better guest than our pioneer researcher, Professor David Sloan Wilson, who has worked within evolutionary biology and recently has worked together with Steve Hayes in training pro-social behavior. David Sloan Wilson is a SUNY Distinguished Professor of Biology and Anthropology at the Binghamton University. He uses evolution to understand and improve the human condition in addition to fundamental contributions to evolutionary theory. He directs several programs that expand evolution beyond the biological sciences in higher education. David has many books that are very interesting uh, that include Darwin's Cathedral, Evolution, Religion, and the Nature of Science, Evolution for Everyone, How Darwin's Theory Can Change the Way We Think About Our Lives, and The Neighborhood Project, Using Evolution to Improve My City, One Block at a Time. These books are available on Amazon.com, but you can also click on David's name to get to his website to read more about David. Welcome, David. Thank you very much, Joanne. David, uh, so tell us, from your perspective, what pro-social behavior is. Well, I think you define pro-sociality well. I define it as any attitude, behavior, or institution oriented towards the welfare of others, or society as a whole. 
And as you mentioned, psychologically, that could in, in, include altruism and empathy, uh, other oriented um, uh, thoughts and feelings, or it could be more self-interested as far as the mechanisms are concerned. But, uh, but prosociality is defined in terms of the overall effect uh, on the welfare of others and society as a whole. And, and so uh, how does this, you know, what is your interest in it personally? Well, I have a personal interest. I'm a pro-social person myself, but I also have an intellectual interest. And what I specifically contribute is an evolutionary uh, perspective. And what, what you do as an evolutionist, of course, is that you take any trade and you put it in a Darwinian competition with other traits. And so the question we need to ask is when, do, when does pro-sociality actually win the Darwinian contest against more self-oriented uh, traits. And evolution has a lot to say about that. It turns out that although prosociality by definition involves doing things on behalf of others, and that is costly compared to a more selfish individual, then there's a variety of ways in which prosociality actually can succeed, mostly by prosocial individuals getting together and collectively benefiting themselves uh, is the primary benefit of prosociality. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that was a little hard to understand too. When you're talking about the Darwinian competition, uh, what, what what could be some examples of what you mean by the one or the other? Well, one point to make is that prosociality is not just a human topic; it's something that pervades the biological world. Mm-hmm. And so, in any species, in any social species, some individuals are going to be benefiting themselves at the expense of their uh, members. Of, the, of those around them, and other individuals are going to be benef- going to be more prosocial. They're going to be benefiting others, possibly even in addition to them themselves. And and evolution is always a contest: who who has who survives and reproduces the best. So for prosociality to exist in the biological world, it has to be the case that prosocial individuals survive and reproduce better than more selfish individuals, despite the fact that they're prosocial. Mm-hmm. So that's a famous puzzle. It begins with Darwin and goes all the way to the present. That's been my whole career has been working on that that puzzle. But the solution is really quite easy, which is that prosociality works at the group level. Groups of individuals who are prosocial survive and reproduce better than other um, other groups. So there's a local advantage to selfishness within a single group. I will, if I'm selfish, I will have the advantage over you, the prosocial, but mm-hmm. If you increase the scale, then as a group, the prosocials do better than the um, than the more selfish individuals. And let me just introduce something very important here uh, from at the very beginning: is that this is a multi-level phenomenon. So, mm-hmm. in plain language, um, what's good for me can be bad for my family. What's good for my family can be bad for my clan. What's good for my clan can be bad for my nation. What's good for my nation can be bad for the global village. So prosociality at any scale actually turns into selfishness as far as that unit interacting with other units. When you say selfishness, David, what does that actually mean? Well, I think it's we have uh, we all have a rich intuition about what selfishness is, is that when we do something which benefits us at the expense of other people, our social um, partners. In biological terms, that's uh, the currency of survival and reproduction. But uh, typically, in everyday terms, when I do something that benefits me and it's at your expense, then I qualify as 
uh, not pro-social, basically. I'm, I'm, I'm more self-oriented. I'm out for myself. I'm not out for uh, for all of us. But wouldn't yeah, I, I've been thinking that recently that you know the word we use egoism or egocentrism, but it seems to me that that is generally a self-destructive behavior because it, it egoism isn't good for me or the people around me. So why do we? Why would that benefit me to if I if I do something in this antisocial way? Well, I, I think it's a false statement to say that egoism is not good for you. It's only in a highly structured environment that that would be the case. Mm-hmm. The reason that we're not all pro-social, and again, this is pervades the biological world, the reason that pro-sociality isn't everywhere in the biological world is that egoism does work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we mm-hmm. might wish it to be otherwise, but it does. Uh-huh. Every, act, every act that we consider to be immoral more or less benefits the immoral individual that the, what makes it immoral is that it harms others. So the advantage of immorality is plain to see. The question is, how do we actually construct social environments in which these acts are actually bad for you? And so we need to construct an environment in which it is true that egoists don't don't work well. But that is a highly constructed environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So David, uh, tell us. Last time you were on the program, you talked about the. Um, uh, pro- project that you, the neighborhood project. Uh, we at least started talking about that, and uh, Steve Hayes has been on the program, t- starting to talk about that. And I, I'd like to hear um, about this pro-social project you have. Right. Well, uh, let me do just a little bit more stage setting, making sure that we have time, and then quick, get quickly to the actual project, which mm-hmm. is intended to uh, teach pro-sociality at a variety of uh, of um, of scales. But uh, I think that some things that can be said from an evolutionary perspective is that our species did evolve to be highly prosocial. In contrast to most other primate species, we evolved mechanisms that make it difficult to be selfish within groups and therefore cause teamwork to be the um, um, uh, most successful uh, strategy, the signature adaptation of our species. So we're genetically adapted to work in small groups, and that makes small groups a fundamental unit of social organization. And I think this is missed by many, many other theories, including like the dominant narrative of the last half century, the neoclassical narrative, which portrays all of human nature as uh, self-interested. And, you know, I I study a lot of different things. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time now studying the business world economics. And this narrative, which pretends that that, that human nature is, is entirely self-interested, is a, a very pervasive and, and toxic narrative. It governs what we do. It governs what we do in the business world, so much so that in the business world, it seems that, that although, it, it, you know, you should be nice outside the, the, the business world, inside, the only way to survive in the hard hard business world is to be competitive and, mm-hmm. and uh, maximize the bottom line and so on. All of this is actually untrue, it turns out, mm-hmm. uh, but it's what everybody everybody uh, believes. So there's tremendous room for improvement by just recognizing the advantages of prosociality and the ease with which it is expressed, in especially in small groups. What, what would large- be an example of that, David, in the business world? Well, there's a wonderful book by Adam Grant called Give and Take, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. which more or less says uh, people people follow uh, three broad strategies. They can be givers just for the love of it. They're the pro-socials. There can be reciprocators who give, calibrate their giving to their taking. And then there are those that are really on the take, basically, and, uh, and uh, are really the self-interested ones. And what he shows is, is, that, uh, is that giving can be a very, very successful strategy in the business world, as long as it's sufficiently um, uh, protected. Some of the most successful people in the business world are givers, mm-hmm. but also some of the least successful people are also the givers. So you can't become a doormat. <laughs> that's, yeah. the, that's the problem of being a, a, a highly pro-social individual. But if you can avoid that, then giving is what it is all about and should be all about. And, and that can be true in the business world just as much in uh, all the other walks of life. Exciting. So, so you're, you've been looking at the business world and what else have you been looking at? Well, with Steve and with other people, especially in the ACT movement, we have created this, this uh, framework we call pro-social for increasing the efficacy of all kinds of groups. We think that there's some core design principles that can be taught and, uh, and that uh, just about any kind of group can benefit from them. So that would include businesses, voluntary groups, churches, groups of all sorts. And these principles are very simple. They actually begin with having a strong group identity and understanding of purpose, because if you don't really know what your group is about and what its mission is, then you're unlikely to be very successful as a group. And the and the exercises for clarifying the group identity and understanding of purpose are drawn directly from acceptance and commitment uh, therapy. And I think it's really interesting to think that what What's proven to work with individuals can also work with groups. That's mm-hmm. uh, no reason why it can't work for for both. And then the other principles more or less revolve around fairness and protections against exploitation within groups. This is, as I said, something that comes pretty naturally, especially for small groups. But it has to be those mechanisms have to be present. And if they're not, then uh, when you open up the opportunity for, for um, um, selfishness basically to work as a, as a strategy, then that breeds distrust and lack of commitment and all kinds of cancerous kinds of, of, um, of, uh, of behavior. So if you could actually create these groups that have a strong sense of purpose and, and, um, and uh, identity, and if you can build in these protections so that it's, uh, it's basically difficult to exploit the group, then this will be a very strong group and people will have a great time being in it. They'll be highly motivated and they'll be very efficacious. We think that we can teach all of those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, do you have some examples of what you've been doing? Well, I think that uh, one, of our, uh, one of our biggest success stories, I might have mentioned it in my last appearance, is a school for at-risk students that we uh, started and uh, building in these principles. And we were able to take uh, uh, students that had been almost certain to drop out. They had uh, failed at least three of their classes during the previous year, uh, really on, a, on a, a straight course to failure. And by creating the social environment, we were able to, to get them to thrive, basically. It was a well-done scientific study so that there was a comparison group and a randomized control design. 
And these students, not only did they do much better than their comparison group, but they did better than, um, they did as well as the average high school student in the school district, which is extraordinary when you think of uh, that only a year ago, they were failing just about all of their courses. And we were able to do this without extending the school year or the school day, merely by creating a social environment in which prosociality can actually win the Darwinian contest. Mm -hmm. What kind of exercises uh, uh, did they do? Did they work in groups or was it similar to your, the school up in the, that you you wrote about in the neighborhood project with the uh, non-segregation and, or what, how did it actually look like? Right. Well, the, uh, so this, I mean, the school of course was mostly for school work. And and so, uh, um, so the actual content of what was taught was not much different, but it did take place in a safe and secure uh, social environment. And uh, the students had a, a say in, in their school day, which is one of the things that's lacking in an American school system is that the students and the teachers even feel powerless. One of these design principles is the authority to for the group to govern its own affairs. Isn't that radical? <laughs> and uh, and so it uh, uh, and so it uh, it uh, it went on like uh, it went on like that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, you know, I, David, recently there was a YouTube, I don't know if you saw it, of the Michigan, of a, a, I think there were ninth graders in the Michigan football team uh, who did a very pro-social, uh, they invited a, a, a boy in who had looked like he had autism and, and uh, they helped him um, make a goal and, and they all supported him and it was um it, it, it changed the actually the, the football players because of this. They said uh, by doing something for someone else, it, com- it changed their perspective. And they became, before they were just, you know, thinking of their own friends. And it was it was uh, a wonderful thing to watch. And you wonder if, if uh, what you're talking about isn't uh, becoming known in, uh, in schools about this pro-social behavior. I have no memory of this uh, when I went to school in the States. Right. Well, I mean, it's interesting when you talk about sports teams that uh, sports teams do teach a kind of prosociality. Uh, we were all taught that there's no I in team, so so the individuals are are uh, expected to subordinate their individual interests for the success of the team. I think, and there's actually some numbers on that. There's studies that show that. Um, in uh, professional teams that are where there's a high disparity in in, uh, in uh, income, that uh, you have some obviously you have some very talented individuals on those teams, but they don't necessarily coordinate their activities as well as teams in which there's uh, a more income equality. And while we're talking about scale, by the way, we've been talking about small groups, but I've also made the point that this is fractal. Basically, this applies at all levels of society. And if we jump to the level of nations, then uh, what we find is is that a very strong relationship between the uh, equality within a nation and the degree to which the nation functions well at that scale. So uh, the most uh, uh, egalitarian nations are the Scandinavian nations and, and, uh, and uh, Switzerland, Japan. Um, and uh, these are also the nations that function best as Nation. So this applies to uh, uh, to all scales. But getting back to the sports groups, okay, so they might be basically very solid as a group, but that gets back to my previous point, 
is that once you, once the group has become like an organism, then it can be a selfish organism or an empathetic organism. And what seems to have happened here is that the group has looked a little bit beyond itself as a group with its groupish concerns, and then found that to be uh, edifying to uh, to uh, to do that. David, I know that you've recently been in Norway. Um, I know it's hard to compare different nations, and but what um, do you think that we are headed towards that type of egalitarian cultures because they they do work well? Or where do you think we're headed as a nation? A project with Norway is uh, very much to study a nation that, uh, as a case study of cultural evolution, that does work well at a national scale. And it is very much a study of how we can implement these things at the scale, first of all, the scale of nations, but also the scale of the global village. And Norway is an excellent example uh, in both of these respects, because even though it functions very well as a nation, and in some ways it plays a pro-social role in the world community, if you look at Norway's foreign policy, for example, and and many of its other policies, um, they are with the intent of making the whole world a better um, place. So in that sense, nation uh, Norway is pro-social as a nation, but there are important exceptions. And one of those is the way that it invests its enormous wealth in its uh, oil pension fund. Mm-hmm. And there what you find is, is that the pension fund is set up for the long-term benefit of the nation, and very few nations have done that. So kudos to Norway for that. Mm-hmm. What uh, but, what what project are you doing in Norway? Well, we are we are. Uh, let me just finish this thought here mm-hmm. that uh, that uh, at the same time uh, when they invest their wealth worldwide, they're often investing in projects which are not sustainable projects. They're for uh, uh, cutting down rainforests to make you know palm oil plantations, um, um, uh, extractive techniques elsewhere which are not uh, sustainable and which are polluting polluting and so on. So. So Norway actually turns into, to some extent, a selfish actor on the world stage in order to maximize its own, its own, um, its own welfare. And uh, one thing we're doing is we're calling attention to that. And the solution to that kind of problem is not just to exhort nations to do better, and for that matter, exhorting individuals to do better is not what's really required. What's required is to set up the mechanisms of social control that work more or less spontaneously at a small scale, uh, they have to be constructed at a large scale. And unless you actually have the means to punish wrongdoing at any scale, then wrongdoing will take place. So the a village basically becomes a blueprint for what needs to be done at a larger uh, scale is to replicate uh, the dynamics of uh, what takes place at a small scale, uh, more or less as a product of genetic evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, David, we've come to the end of the program already. I, um, what, where do you think the future of this is all going? Do you think that pro-social behavior will become um, something we we will understand and strive for on different levels? I think that uh, that uh, it. Everyone wants prosociality to spread, but uh, unless we understand it from an evolutionary perspective, it will not. And so I, I am optimistic, but my optimism rests on on the fact that uh, that uh, we all become more knowledgeable 
about the evolutionary dynamics of prosociality because that is the kind of knowledge that will be required in order to uh, spread it. Without that knowledge, I think we can forget about it. But with that knowledge, then we can set about, we actually do have a blueprint for increasing prosociality at um, all scales. And I would encourage your listeners who are interested in joining our prosocial project, which is um, at a small scale, to get in touch with me or with Steve Hayes, because we have a mechanism in place where just about any group can actually learn these principles. So that's very exciting. And then at a larger scale, just to basically to to um, to learn through uh, in, by any means um, what we are trying to accomplish here about how to use evolution as a as a general theoretical framework for understanding and, and improving the human condition in just the same way that it's used by evolutionary biologists to understand the rest of life. Well, well, David. Um... I'm sure you know I and many many people appreciate your your pioneering efforts in this field. So I'm very thankful that you're here to teach us about evolution. This is something very new for many of us. So thank you so much for being on our program today. And thanks for all that you do. Uh, you've been listening to David Sloan Wilson. David is a SUNY Distinguished Professor of Biology and Anthropology at the Binghamton University. Uh, David uses evolution to understand and improve the human condition in addition to his fundamental contribution to evolutionary theory. Uh, David has written several books. They, um, I mentioned that David is a very, very good writer, um, and I really have enjoyed his books. Uh, his books include Darwin's Cathedral, Evolution for Everyone, and uh, The Neighborhood Project. Uh, these are excellent books, very easy to read, and um, I think can really contribute to your understanding of evolution. So you can read more about David and his books by clicking on his name on this week's episode of ACT, Taking Her to Hope. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Joanne and her work, please see her website at joannedahl.com or click on the host website icon in front of you on the webtalkradio.net page. Joanne's books are available through Amazon.com, including her two latest, The Diet Trap, Feed Your Psychological Needs, and End the Weight Loss Struggle Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, and ACT and RFT in Relationships, Helping Clients Deepen Intimacy and Maintain Healthy Commitments Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy and Rational Frame Theory. Amazon also carries her books on chronic pain and other topics. We hope you'll join us again soon for another episode of ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope.